And now a short audio clip from Kiss the Future, a documentary about the siege of Sarajevo in the 90s. As you can tell from the warranted F-bombs, this is Enos, the lead singer of a Bosnian punk rock band. There's a sentence you don't hear that often. Bosnian punk rock band. Take it away, Enos. Our punk rock was a weapon to tell him, fuck you, fuck you. You can't do anything to us. Yeah, you can you can keep on shooting at us, killing us and all this, but we will tell you fuck you anyway. Amazing! What can a punk rock band do in the midst of shelling and snipers? The only thing a punk rock band can do, make a loud noise. Yo, welcome to My Summer Lair. I'm your host, Sammy, the second runner-up in the Miss Sarajevo contest, Yunnan. So close. Kiss the Future is a potent documentary. The basic description is this. Witness the resilience of the people of Sarajevo through art and music and the tale of a post-war concert by U2. Directed by Nanad Shisin-Sain. Produced by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Featuring Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton of U2, and Bill Clinton, this is an uplifting documentary about undaunted creativity. During the siege of Sarajevo between 1992 and 1996, the city's Bosnians refused to surrender to the war. Instead, they hooked up generators and put on plays, a beauty contest, the Miss Sarajevo contest, and played loud punk rock music. They made punk rock music too. History lesson, kids. On December 30th, 1989... You 2 were playing in Dublin, Ireland, and Bono told the audience that U2 has to go away and dream it all up again. The band began searching for a new sonic direction following their Rattle and Hum album. This pivotal Dublin concert was just over a month after the Berlin Wall fell on November 9, 1989. The fall of the Berlin Wall and the subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union accelerated the push for deeper European integration. This is when Central European tenets like freedom of movement were formalized. Now, you can backpack throughout Europe to go find yourself. Good luck. However, the unraveling of Yugoslavia in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union resulted in a decade of grim conflict that prompted a reevaluation of national sovereignty and the responsibility of outside powers like America and NATO to stop atrocities. Sadly, the Cold War heats up as as do the debates about human rights above state sovereignty. We're still having these debates, human rights versus state sovereignty. U2 arrived on October 3rd, 1990 on the last flight into East Berlin on the eve of German reunification to begin Berlin sessions recording what would be later called Achtung Baby. They were hoping for that David Bowie magic, and it turned out Bowie, like Elvis, has left the building. On November 18, 1991, U2 released Octane Baby, and at the same time, they've also released their earnest do-gooder public image. That sucker is gone. Now, their new public image is lighthearted with a self-deprecating tone. Maybe they did find some of that Bowie magic after all, because this reinvention has made them finally, finally for the first time, U2 is cool. We didn't use the word swagger in the 90s, but oh, we've always understood the concept. Yugoslavia's leveling continues 
with a number of notable massacres and the siege of Sarajevo, which started on April 5th, 1992 and ended on February 29, 1996, lasting for 1,425 days. Damn. Shortages of food and water, snipers, bombed out schools. This was dark and ugly and violent and horrific. February 29, 1992, shortly before the siege of Sarajevo, U2 launched Zoo TV, a multi-sensory overload spectacle that presents their fresh reinvention to mass audiences. They come for the new music and they stay for the satire of news sold to viewers as entertainment. The concerts incorporate channel surfing, uh, prank calls, video confessionals, someone were spicy, uh, a belly dancer, and eventually as U2 were touring Europe in 1993, live satellite transmissions with Sarajevo. Imagine interrupting a rock concert, 20 to 40,000 sweating people, some high, some horny, some happy, to bring live perspectives direct from Sarajevo. The audience didn't know what to expect. The band didn't know what to expect. You're in a ravaged Sarajevo and you've been given this opportunity to speak to thousands of people. What do you say? What, what, what do you share? Like, how, how do you help people who've gathered for a good time to understand what the siege of Sarajevo is like. And so I mind the past with Nenan, the director of Kiss the Future, to better understand how we can confront the present. Prepare for a conversation that covers war, Zoo TV, Bill Carter, love and human connection, and of course, more punk rock, including The Clash. Sound, the final frontier. My summer lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan. Actually, before we talk about your documentary, because uh, one of the threads in the documentary, Kiss the Future, is Zoo TV, uh, U2's multimedia spectacle for Octo and Baby at the time in the 90s. Uh, U2 are currently in Vegas having resurrected Zoo TV, but in a much larger fashion. Like, have you gone to any of the Vegas shows? No, I was invited to go, but I, I haven't been able to go. I'm already on some other projects, so life and family has prevented me, unfortunately, from being able to see it. But I've heard it's ex- beyond extraordinary. It's uh, it's amazing. Like this is like <laughs> the idea of like kiss the future. This is the future of like concerts. Like you can do so much with this. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the sphere continues to evolve as the technology evolves as well, and you get different bands in there. So. Uh, but if you have a chance, I know they are kind of running out of shows. I think it finishes up in March. If, uh, yeah. if there is like 10 minutes or 15 minutes where you can kind of just get, get down to Vegas, it'd be well worth it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try. So let's focus on your documentary. Cause in 2022 with the full scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, many global citizens were like sympathetic to Ukraine because Ukrainians, because, most of us have no direct connection with Ukraine. Most of us don't consume a lot of pop culture, if any, from there. But the situation was awful. So it echoes what happened with Sarajevo in the 90s, the early 90s. Like here in North America, Sarajevo was a city we didn't really have any direct connection with. Can you give us a snapshot of this wonderful city? Yeah, um, Sarajevo uh, being in Bosnia in the former Yugoslavia is a very special place because when you go to Sarajevo, if you go to one then this is many intersections on one corner of an intersection will be a mosque on another corner. There'll be a synagogue 
then a Catholic church, and then an Orthodox church. Um, and these places of worship have been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years of people living in a pluralism of coexistence, which is, I think, humanity at its best. Uh, and it's very, and it's not just something you see, but it's you hear. You hear the call to prayer and the, you know, the choirs, and they have an inter-religious choir several times a year that plays together, you know. Um, and so Sarajevo during the war and Yugoslavia and on, during the siege was surrounded by Yugoslav Serbian forces and people's food and water was shut off. Um, their power, and they were shot at and and by snipers and shelling on a daily basis for four years because of their pluralism and because of their what they represented of living together in a beautiful integrated society. Yeah, it's one of the themes of the documentary, which is like the arts and that kind of creativity are are a threat to like bullies, right? It can be in, very intimidating, and that's one of the reasons why, like. We've seen this in World War II and other situations when war breaks out. The artists are always one of the first people to be harmed and taken out. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. That's definitely something the uh, the Nazi regime did was they started to um, destroy um, different works of arts by Jews and and Poles and it, yeah, yes. That's something that is true historically was get rid of the art. And what you're talking to about with Sarajevo, it reflects a little bit your family as well, right? Like you have an Albanian wife. Uh, what are your parents' backgrounds? It's also unusual. Yeah, so I, have a, I was born in former Yugoslavia. I have a Croatian father, Serbian mother, Albanian wife. Uh, lived predominantly in Croatia, but was born in Slovenia and lived there for the first parts of my life and then um, immigrated to the United Canada and the United States later on, but was back there during the war. Yeah, so that makes for like an interesting Christmas dinner, right? When you have this group of people <laughs> together. Uh, like from that kind of experience, just personally, like what have you learned about like nationalism and how we culturally connect? Because that's what you're saying about like uh, Sarajevo, right? It's got a nice like culture, but there's no necessarily culture clash. It's able to like meld. So... From your own personal experiences like that, how have you learned how to like we culturally connect? Well, I mean, I didn't know anything different because I lived in a home where um, your ethnicity didn't matter. Obviously, I'm a mutt of all, you know of all those different um, regions of Yugoslavia before, so I didn't know any different. Mm -hmm. But what I'm aware of what happens is, you know, this is a threat to nationalists whose agenda is to divide us. Um, and to make create enemies and us versus them. Yeah. Well, what they do is, is they attack the most essential thing, right? What it, after sustenance, the most essential part I believe as human beings is to be loved and part of a community, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is so important to us. And it's the foundation for our religious beliefs and so many different things. And what people like Milosevic do is, is they weaponize, you know, that's a form of tribalism, what I described. And what they do is, is they weaponize tribalism and they try and divide us based on saying that, you know, um, uh, Bosnians are a threat because they're integrated or whichever it may be. So, um, so yeah, in my experience, um, it's sad that people like Milosevic use pluralism as a way to divide. Mm-hmm. 
And this idea too, what you're talking about with this uh, looking for love and for connection, this is a good segue to introduce Bill Carter. Who is Bill Carter in your documentary? Bill Carter was a aid worker um, who had a tragedy happen in his life. He went to Bosnia looking for, I think, purpose and I kind of new identity in 92 during the war. And he witnessed going out at night, these underground clubs and music scenes. And um, I think he was there for maybe a month, month and a half. And he saw a um, MTV video of Bono from U2 putting a message out to Bosnians saying, making sure that they were knew that they were thinking about them and that, you know, he says, we won't be deaf. We won't be blind. We're not dumb. We're aware of what's happening there to draw international attention to it. And it gave Bill Carter the idea to go interview Bono. And so he faked being a journalist <laughs> um, and, you know, got this wrote, had put on letterhead, which all in the documentary, this, um, falsified document that he was part of Bosnian TV to go interview the band. And he landed the interview through that and ended up getting the interview through a crazy journey and ended up forming a relationship with Bono where they did these live satellite links where Bill was in Sarajevo and he would get people to talk about what they were experiencing. And they would stop zoo TV concerts and they would see those videos live. Um, the audience of 40 or five, 50,000 people to make sure that the world didn't stop paying attention to what was happening in, in Sarajevo. Yeah. And crucially they were touring, U2 was touring Europe at that time. So this was like, these were like almost next door neighbors, right? It's not like, yeah. it's not like they were like in Florida or somewhere touring the States. Uh, so yeah, right. it has a, a bigger direct connection. But now looking back, especially as you made uh, this documentary, Kiss the Future, like, how do you view the satellite link-ups? Because Paul McGinnis, the YouTube manager in the documentary, he refers to them as propaganda. He didn't seem that keen on them in a sense. How do you view the, the satellite link-ups? Well, he called them propaganda, but he said they're, they're a good propaganda, mm-hmm. right? And they are propaganda. But the intent was to shed a light on what was happening. I mean, how do I see, how do I see them now? Look, it's, I think it's the intent by Bill and by the band was to draw attention to a horrific circumstance and humanize people in a state of horror. And I think regardless of how those links might have played out, which we see in the film, I think the intent is the most important thing. And, you know, I was talking to Christiana Anpour about this, who's featured heavily in the film, and she said, anybody who was trying to humanize and draw attention to what was happening to the people in this heinous crime of the siege was doing a good thing. And I think that's the case with what we, you know, what's hopefully going on with people trying to do the same thing in Ukraine and Israel and Gaza. Yeah. They, I found that looking back and watching the footage in your documentary, they almost feel like they're TikToks. Right. Because they're just like very short kind of things. And it gives you a window into that world that you wouldn't normally have access to, especially because this was the mid 90s. Right. So there's barely any Internet at that point. So they're almost like a precursor to TikTok, where you get this window into this world, this horrific world. 
but you also get to connect with people that normally wouldn't be on CNN or in Time magazine. Yeah, I could see it that way. I mean, I think I think what U2 was doing with the Zoo TV tour is, is they were they had different satellite feeds that they were making a commentary about mass media at the time and 24-hour news cycle on CNN and the news becoming a form of entertainment. And what's how does that affect us as a, as a society? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think because that was part of the programming of this tour that they were doing with Zoo TV, that this idea of doing these live satellite feeds to Sarajevo were a continuation of, in a sense, of what they were doing already doing. But with way more jeopardy and at stake of the ramifications of those because it's not rehearsed and it's live, Mm -hmm. um, how things could play out. Some of them, some of the link-ups that you had in the documentary, they're very sweet. Like, uh, I think my one of them was like, my wife or my fiancé is in the audience. I think it was a show in Italy, right? And everyone's like, oh, that's really cute, right? And then other ones were like accusing you two or like the audience of like doing nothing and standing by, right? Like... Uh, so it can kind of sometimes take away the emotion too of the concert, right? Cause it just makes it like, seem like a really stupid thing to do to have a concert while there's a genocide going on next door. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that you too, as a band puts themselves in a vulnerable place pretty often, but mm-hmm. the intent is, uh, the intent is to be activists and to draw attention to something that may not be getting the attention that it deserves although it's not their responsibility to do that. I think that's who they are as human beings. And, you know, I think they, they really take it in the neck sometimes for that mm-hmm. unfairly. Um, and I think the satellite links in Sarajevo, the way that they played out is there's a natural evolution to them, which almost fits perfectly in the evolution of the way that we lay them out in the film, which is the first satellite link, as you said, was very sweet and beautiful and emotional. But as these as the conflict wears on, I mean, as the siege, not conflict, continues, and as the circumstances become more grim, eventually there's a person who comes on and says to the band in front of 50,000 people, what are you doing for us? I think nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty devastating moment for all parties involved because they're there to do good. Um, and there's different ways that it can be perceived as to what they were doing. But I think at the end of the day, it says what we were talking about before. It's about intent. What's yeah. the intent? The intent is to humanize people in an inhumane situation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize, like, you two had shot a lot of footage during Zoo TV. Like, do, do they shoot a lot of footage during their concerts? Yeah, I mean, I think any rock band has so much media around them, and they have mm-hmm. their own professional TV, their own professional media teams of there's probably five or six cameras covering every concert at every second and going to the concert and the buses and the planes and their interviews. And, you know, they're, they're a monolith of, of media mm-hmm. and the demand, the need for that. So there's an infrastructure there to support that. Continuing that thread of media, I think it was a press conference in Berlin um, where uh, you and Matt Damon and several other people who were in the documentary were there and uh matt was laughing because like you would make a cut of the doc and then show it to matt damon and he said this is good keep grinding keep going like how did you uh end up uh like working with like matt damon and you two and like end up making this documentary yeah so um i pitched matt a a, a, a synopsis for film 
that they took on and we were, I was writing a screenplay for their company. And through the process of writing that screenplay, he told me he was friends with Bono. And I knew that there was this extraordinary archive and being from the region that the world had never seen of this concert from U2 mm-hmm. playing for 40,000 people that had been killing each other not long before. And so I, when we finished the screenplay, I asked Matt if he would produce it and he said he would. And, um, and I had this extraordinary experience working with him because one, the film got made because of him. And, you know, I was in a very safe, creative space and, you know, he's this great, this extraordinary storyteller. He won an Academy Award for Goodwill Hunting and he continues as a producer and writer to, you know, tell really powerful, meaningful stories, but make them accessible. So I, what he was referencing in that press conference is, is the process in which we would work. I would call him. And when I was developing it with Bill Carter, and I would say, hey, I have an idea. Here's the intent of what I want. For example, the first act, the way we set up the film to play. What do you think of that? And he'd be like, OK, that makes sense how, you know, that fits with the story, et cetera. And then I would explain to him in more nuance what it is. And I'd say, does that land? Mm-hmm. And he would say it either lands because of this or it doesn't because of that. And then he would give me feedback and I would, re- you know, work on it based on how he interpreted what I wanted to do. But it was always about, this is my intent. This is what it's supposed to serve in the story. How do you feel this works? And he would give me his thoughts. And we did this from the development stage through the editing stage until it was completed. And it's a really rare gift to be able to work with somebody so talented who's there to get the best version of you as a filmmaker and storyteller the best version of the story, which is always the most important, um, and then continue to mine it and, you know, be supportive as opposed to heavy handed. Um, And that's what he was referring to in the editing phase, which is, you know, here's an assembly of the film. What do you think? He'd say, I think it's great. I'd be like, this is what I want to do. Say, keep going. And, you know, we kept going through that process until we were done. But it was a quite quick edit. I mean, I think we edited the whole film in 12 weeks, 12 weeks. That's where, pretty good for a documentary. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's pretty crazy. There's documentaries like this that are edited for years. Before yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. And not just the editing as well, but I also want to touch upon the uh, the soundtrack because the soundtrack's phenomenal. Uh, Clash and Foo Fighters, Public Enemy. Um, the Edge, I found, was really uh, eloquent, talking about punk rock and The Clash. Uh, so even though this is a documentary about Sarajevo and black humor and defying creativity, like how did you organically bring you two into the story? Because they're the salt and pepper, right? You want the Bosnians and the people that are in the siege to kind of be front and center. Yeah, I mean, that was that was one of the most difficult things we had to crack, right? Was the story, and this is what was most essential, was about the Bosnians and the local underground music and art scene. It wasn't about YouTube, although all the stories led to this post-war concert where, you know, there's a culmination and everything intersects at one place. It's this very emotional thing. And so in terms of how we introduced U2, it was a struggle because they didn't want the film to be about them. We It would have been very easy to just make a U2 concert film in Sarajevo, and many people would have just wanted to do that, but the band didn't want to do that, and I didn't want to do that, and Bill Carter didn't want to do that. So, you know, in doing my research, 
my favorite band of all time is The Clash. And in doing my research, U2's favorite band was The Clash. Mm-hmm. And of the Bosnians' favorite band was The Clash, right? So it makes sense too for like it's uh, The Clash is the soundtrack for like a war like that. Well, I mean, they were singing about injustice. They were singing about inequity, about social injustice, about repression. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were a punk rock band, but the what they were singing about were very meaningful things. You know, they had a couple of love songs, but they weren't songs about falling in and out of love. They were songs about, you know, injustice. Mm-hmm. And that's what you two ended up singing about many times as activists in their own right. Sunday Bloody Sunday. I mean, it goes on forever, right? The list of songs. And so the way to get them into the film was about the musicians in Sarajevo talking about their inspiration and having you two talk about their inspiration for who they became. And those two things were the same thing. And once we were able to have that conversation, you two organically came into the film and we never had to establish them as the biggest band in the world. Um, We were able to introduce them based on in a very organic way, which is this relationship that they had with the musicians in the Sarajevo, being musicians in Ireland that were dealing with their own conflicts. Mm-hmm. you know, prior to the Sarajevo conflict. The troubles. Yeah. And, you know, I think what's pretty fascinating, and I was, I didn't know this at the time, but just over this past holidays, I was reading the Rolling Stone top 100 bands of all time or musical acts of all time. And interestingly, if you looked at the top 20 from Sam Cooke to Otis Redding to Bob Marley to you 2 um, there's this common thread. All these musicians are singing about social injustice. Yes, they may have a long love song or two, but there's this common thread of the the artists who are the most influential, according to Rolling Stone, Mm -hmm. there's a common, which is singing about social injustice and inequity in society, um, which is part of the film without my having realized that that's what we were doing. Yeah, and it circles back to hope as well, right? Because that was what, uh, running through your documentary was, uh, like, music was hope for them, right? It was one of the ways they kind of kept that hope alive. Yeah, I mean, I think as a human being, if you can, one, connect with other people, it gives you hope, makes you feel human. If you can sing and express yourself, it makes you feel human. You know, these are all what seem like luxuries, become necessities and the necessity, you know, there was a number of books written during world war two of people who were living under horrific circumstances in concentration camps, why certain people perished and others did not, if it wasn't by, you know, being put in a gas chamber or shot people who made it through the end and those who deteriorated and those didn't. And there's a very common theme of those who could retain a sense of hope were able to survive and help others survive. And one of the films that was such a meaningful influence to this movie was Life is Beautiful, directed and written by Roberto Benigni, mm-hmm. who in that film, he ends up in a concentration camp with his son and continues to have this fantasy play world and humor as if they weren't in a concentration camp. So his son was not surrounded by the horror, but was surrounded by love and humanity. I want to like extend that thread of love and humanity because there is a really moving montage set to one 
with uh, a lot of the Bosnians uh, who had survived this like catastrophic siege. It was really deeply moving. What was the atmosphere or the vibe like in the room when you were shooting that? You mean when I was shooting people reacting to the concert? Yeah, to one specifically, yeah. Very powerful. I mean, look, all those interviews were, there's many days on set where there wasn't a dry eye, not just from sadness, but from happiness and seeing the most beautiful sides. But, you know, I had the idea to stimulate, to bring people back to that moment, not just by where we shot the interviews and what we surrounded them with, but also by playing certain things for them. And, you know, we were, it worked. Like when we played the video for one and that footage, um, people were very moved and started crying and, uh, and singing along and clapping. So, so yeah, it was, it was moving for all of us to be there and experience that. Was it difficult or were, were there, was there any reluctance in people like Bill Carter and other individuals you had in Kiss the Future to kind of relive these memories or these experiences? Were they willing to go back or was this kind of just part of the healing process in a sense? Yeah, I think a lot of people were reluctant um, because people experience PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the first time I reached out to Bill Carter to ask him to be involved, he didn't respond to me. I wrote him an email. And I actually had to have a, a famous filmmaker friend of mine reach out to him and tell him what the intent with the documentary was to use as a cautionary tale that kind of turned him to want to engage, you know, to to want to work with me. Um, Vesna Simovich, who's in the film, who was the local journalist and uh, ended up, um, you know, there's the footage of her getting married during the siege. He was a researcher um, on the film, helping us find stories. And she told me how she was married during the siege. And I asked her, I said, hey, and I, is there footage of that wedding during the siege? And she, yeah. And I said, can I see it? And she reluctantly said yes. And then I was like, oh my God, you have to be in the film. You were you know, part of this thriving art scene and you were married in the siege. Mm-hmm. And I have a perfect song for that, that I've been looking for the right footage for, for the better part of 20 years, you got to put it in the movie. And we, she went through big deliberations on should she, or should she not do it and be involved? And she eventually agreed to do it and is a centerpiece of the film. So I think a lot, including the band, the band was extremely reluctant, you know, even after Matt, who has this relationship called them and said, yeah, we're going to do this. We still had to fly over to Dublin. Drew Vinton, who's an executive works with Matt, at his company, who's subsequently his roommate at Harvard and one of his closest friends since then, you know, we flew to Dublin. We went and met with Adam Clayton and the Edge and Adam Clayton's home. They hosted us to this incredible lunch. And but the intent was we had to share what we wanted to do as a film. And what they didn't want was a film about the band, because there's been enough films about the band. What we what we shared was we want to make a film about the Bosnians and the local music scene. And we even had to say, this isn't a film about Bill Carter. This is a, he's a catalyst to bring you guys to it. This is a film about the local musicians. And it wasn't until that lunch happened in Dublin that we got a call afterwards where they were, you know, fully in. Um, So yes, a lot of extremely reluctant people, a lot of work to get people to be involved and contribute and share archives. And, and, you know, there was one of the greatest shots in the film is of 
Enos from the punk rock band running with two bags early in the film. And it looks like children of men in this very cinematic panning shot. Mm. And who shot that? Where's that footage? There's got to be more of that because whoever had that eye, you know, has more extraordinary footage. So we reached out to that cinematographer who lived there for two years and they shot us down. They said, they said, uh, no. And then we um, screened for them a rough cut of the film and then we got three and a half hours of the most extraordinary footage that we wove into the movie. So we had to continue to win over the participants by what the intent was and what the final product of the film would be. There's that word again, intent, right? Like we've talked about this with the set of link ups with uh, punk rock, with you two and Bob Marley and other activists in music. And now even with you making this film, like intent is like the, I guess the, the million dollar word, right? Because when something is tragic and awful is happening like this in Sarajevo, you want to shine a light on it, but you don't want to exploit or harm the people in another way that when they're already in a dangerous situation. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I don't think anybody can see all the things that can come down the road from that intent and how these things can play out, you know, and sometimes things go bad, but at the end of the day, it's what's your motivating factor. And, you know, I, I have so much, well, look, you asked me if it was difficult to get people in. You know who wasn't difficult to get in? Drew Vinton and Matt Damon. They were like, the second I told them we I wanted to do this, they just said yes mm-hmm. and fully jumped in and made it happen, right? But what really impresses me is, and, and I also have empathy for seeing how you two can take it in the neck for intent. These guys lived through their own struggles in in Ireland as young men. They weren't in Northern Ireland. They were in Dublin, but they experienced it and it was visceral and it was shaped who they were and it made them activists. And, you know, I think when we've seen the extraordinary work that they and Bono have done around the world, debt relief in Africa and AIDS, and it just kind of goes on and on. But Intent has ramifications as well. And, you know, I I recently saw on social media when they posted the the news that this film was coming out that people were furious that they weren't drawing more attention to Gaza and and Israel and what was happening there. Mm -hmm. And there was so much anger and outrage. And it's, you know, eventually you saw that Bono at the Sphere a couple days ago addressed you know, what was going on in the Middle East as well. But it's got to be very difficult to be, have so much public attention towards you, to have this microphone and want to do good. But what can sometimes come from the intent of doing good and the fact that they would agree to do this, I'm pretty, it's pretty amazing because this could have gone really, really bad. Yeah, in Bill Flanagan's book, he covered U2 during that Zoo TV tour in the 90s. And at one point, as they were doing the satellite link-ups, uh, I can't remember which member, the it was either Bono or The Edge, one of them said basically like the satellite link-ups with Sarajevo had set back their public image like about four or five years because they had started to be cool again, right? They were wearing black leather and they were staying out late and they had like Zoo TV, which is all this like spectacle 
they were cool for the first time. <laughs> and now they went back to like the earnest guys again and like, we got to help people. This is a bad situation. And so a lot of the media and the press were kind of turning against them again because it was like, oh man, we don't want that. We want the cool guys again, right? But like you said, because every now and then when you see like, when you walk past like a house that's on fire, you have an obligation to call the fire department. You may not be able to necessarily put out the fire, but you have an obligation to call, like, call the fire department to put it out. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, these guys are human beings who feel for circumstances that are happening around the world and want to do something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same way that Bill Carter wanted to and all the people in Sarajevo who are profiled in the film. And, you know, one of the stories that I didn't draw enough attention to that's just so meaningful in the outcome of what happened was Mohammed Sukkabi. Can I, do you have a minute so I can just share his story with you? Yeah. Because we didn't have yeah, yeah. So Mohammed Sukkabi was um, Bosnian parents, born former Yugoslavia, grew up in the United States, ended up playing football at, um, at Tulane at the first black and white integrated team and became a lawyer. And the conflict in Yugoslavia broke out and his father said to him, you have to go back and do something. And he was like, what am I going to do? I'm a lawyer in the United States. He goes, but you're a Bosnian Muslim lawyer. So he ended up putting himself in extraordinary jeopardy by going back to Bosnia, where Muslims were being targeted, and ended up becoming a diplomat and a diplomat to the UN. And he was the one who advocated for cultural diplomacy. Um, and he saw what was happening in the city with the music and art as a way to humanize uh, Sarajevans and to connect with the world. And so when Bono said, listen, let's do this post-war concert because of this now long relationship he had developed with the city at that time, he went to Mohammed and to Mo and said, how do we do this the right way? And Mo said, the only way this concert is going to be significant in the way it needs to be is, is if we invite those who we perceive to be our enemies. And it was Mo's idea and motivation that the band supported to bring Serbians who were the aggressor, who were, you know, the Yugoslavian Serbian military was shelling and killing Bosnians. There was literally people who for sport were on the hills mm -hmm. sniping Sarajevans. And they invited these people to the concert. Why did they do it? Why? Because that's the only way you can heal is if you embrace your enemy and they are then no longer your enemy. Yeah. We, you started talking about how tribalism can be weaponized. Right. And that's one of the ways right. that you, you dismantle that bomb. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the more you, the first thing that goes is humanity. That's the first thing we lose and they manipulate our religious beliefs, our need for community, our, they manipulate these things to take away our humanity uh, and to not be able to empathize and feel for what has been a contrived enemy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're seeing this, this in the States a lot now, right? With like some MAGA voters or Trump voters are like liberals. And it's just like the shorthand for monster almost. I think it happens on all sides. You know, I think, look, I have my own beliefs, but that's not what this is. That's not what, I think it just happens on all sides. Every mm -hmm. people stop seeing the other side as a human being 
and see him as a monster. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we vilify people in that way, we lose our empathy and enable, you know, these lunatics seeking power to do atrocities. Yeah. And we also lose that creativity, right? Because as dark as this movie was and as dark as the siege in Sarajevo was, this is a very uplifting, inspiring movie because it's about that defying creativity in the face of all of that. We're going to hook up generators and like put on hair. We're going to hook up generators and do punk rock. Like We're going to keep doing and making and being creative. And being creative is one of the most human things that we do. Yeah, because it's a way to express ourselves and connect. And, you know, there's that beautiful moment where Enos from the local punk rock band says, um, fuck you, you can't do anything to us, mm-hmm. you know, by playing music. And the other thing that Mohammed Suckabee did, Mo, was he not only invited the enemies to the concert, but he picked the local punk rock band that we follow, that we set up in the early film to open for you two. But he also invited the Muslim choir, you know, he to sing spiritual music before a, a, a rock show. And, you know, I think these kinds of ideas and actions of pluralism and acceptance and empathy for um different beliefs and musical tastes. These are all the things that live, that take us to a much richer and healthier society. That is what we lack when we become divided, you know? Yeah. That's a positive note. We can end it there because that's how we kiss the future. Right. That's right. I really enjoyed very, very good questions. Yo, that was Nanad, the director of Kiss the Future. I'm Sammy, host of My Summer Layer. Over the course of this conversation, we touched upon Sarajevo parallels with Ukraine. Currently, Sudan is unfortunately dealing with internal ruckus right now. And to that list, we can also add our recent experiences with the pandemic. When the virus hit in uh, was it March 2020, we shut everything down. But even early on, like within weeks, we all quickly grasped the experiences we enjoy and that make life worth living are simply not going away. During the pandemic, we hosted all these terrible experiments like parking lot stand-up comedy where you can like honk your horn or flash your lights instead of laughing. It's, it's not the same as laughing in a room full of strangers. We shared creativity over Zoom, music, and weird plays. Yet the chills of several thousand people all taking over for the lead singer and collectively singing one song, one choir, that's just better. None of those online pandemic experiences fully worked out for fans and for creators. It simply doesn't matter if the virus was permanent, promising to linger in our society. Naturally, we had to go back. We had no choice. We had to go back to movie cinemas and Broadway shows and stand-up comedy and live magic. Live and live are basically the same word because a live show is how we live. That undenied creative impulse rings throughout Kiss the Future. This is not a YouTube concert film. Most of us have no connection to Sarajevo. It's a punk rock celebration of creativity where it's raw and messy but totally infectious fun. That's uplifting. As the pandemic taught us, take nothing for granted. 
Use the time you have and go to shows. Go to as many shows as you can. You take risks. Seek surprise and seek delight. Share your discoveries and your passions. I do. Weekly, I do. I write my pal Sammy a weekly Substack newsletter. One of my forms of creativity is sharing. You'll see a popular hashtag pantsworthy. Hashtag pantsworthy. I include pantsworthy events because they're worth putting on pants for. Magic happens when you get off the couch. Kiss the Future is playing at select AMC theaters. That is pants worthy. Sign up. Let's connect and extend this conversation. You can sign up at mysummerlayer.com slash subscribe or Google Substack. My pal Sammy. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Sarajevo, yo.